Good morning. I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Monday, September 19th. Is there enough electricity for the statewide electric car mandate? More on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of climate bills Friday. The new laws are meant to speed up phasing out fossil fuels and ramping up clean energy development. Asked about the recent heat wave and strains on the state's power grid, Newsom said the state is in the process of increasing its energy production and storage capacity. The governor also touted nearly $54 billion in spending to deploy new renewable energy and carbon capture technology around the state. San Diego County prosecutors are not filing sexual assault charges against Will Rodriguez Kennedy, the chair of the San Diego County Democratic Party. Last spring, an ex-boyfriend filed a police report saying Rodriguez Kennedy had sex with him while he was intoxicated and incapable of consent. Rodriguez Kennedy denies those claims. He's been on leave from his position as party chairman since May. It's unclear when or if he'll return to that position. There was a slight increase in the unemployment rate in San Diego County between July and August. The August rate was 3.4 percent, compared to 3.1 percent in July. Last month's unemployment rate was still considerably less in August last year. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. California is poised to add millions of electric cars to local roads in the next decade. But is there enough electricity to fuel them? KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson looks at whether the grid can handle the load. The gentle hum of electric vehicles could soon overtake the rumble of internal combustion engines in California. Clean air regulators say all new cars sold in the state will be electric or zero emissions by 2035. But California's relationship with the power grid is fraught with uncertainty a fact highlighted by a late summer heat wave. Between now and next Wednesday, we're going to be experiencing a prolonged heat uh, moment. We're going to have... Governor Gavin Newsom's calls for conservation were answered and the threat of rolling blackouts was averted. But Newsom was roasted on social media after power grid officials asked residents not to charge their EVs during the evening. That came just a week after the state announced the 2035 ban on the sale of new cars with internal combustion engines. Still, California remains committed to shrinking its carbon footprint as a way to avoid more intense wildfires and drought, hallmarks of climate change. We need to eliminate emissions from the California economy. David Victor is an energy policy researcher at UC San Diego. Biggest source of emissions right now in California, 41% of emissions come from transportation. So you got to tackle that. And the leading solution, not the only solution, but the leading solution is electrifying, especially electrifying cars. Victor says 
no one wants the electric grid to become less reliable, and he says there's time for the state to absorb the coming demand. He says EVs are arriving in the midst of an energy transition. Solar and wind are rising in prominence, but that also calls for more energy storage capacity, and the grid will have to be built up to account for the extra draw from EVs. Pretty much every study shows there's going to be a significant increase in the demand for electricity in California as a result of this. I think many of the studies suggest that light-duty vehicles alone, so cars, uh, that they are going to be responsible for maybe a one-quarter increase in the demand for electricity between now and 2045. And while millions of new EVs will be feeding off the electric grid in coming years, the change isn't immediate. San Diego Gas and Electric representatives say they can handle the demand for more power as more EVs hit the road. The short answer to that is is yes. Jenny Reynolds is San Diego Gas and Electric's Director of Clean Transportation. The long answer is much more complicated. And so when you start getting into the specifics of when that load's going to hit, how it's going to hit, what new technology and what type of battery storage we have to help, you know, that's a much more complex answer. Reynolds says the utility can build the required power lines and transformers. That's what utilities do. But the company also needs to build understanding among its EV customers. Right now, energy usage peaks between 4 and 9 p.m., the utility wants EV charging to happen during the day or overnight. If we can get a lot of that charging in those times, then the build-out isn't going to be as much. So we have capacity that's there. It's about how do we incentivize customers to use that capacity. Then it's also the new technology like vehicle-to-grid. Vehicle-to-grid is an emerging technology being tested in the Cajon Valley School District. Electric buses can feed power in their batteries back to the grid for a premium price when electricity is in short supply. EVs, in essence, could become a huge reservoir of stored energy. But UC San Diego's Jan Kleisel says that tech isn't quite ready yet. The devil really is in the details of uh, the inverter technology not becoming too expensive and the battery manufacturer, meaning in this case the vehicle manufacturer, agreeing that, that this is something that they could cover under warranty. Kleisel says developing ways to manage the power demand from millions of household devices and EVs will keep the grid reliable. Computing systems uh, can help us to manage things better in time, like scheduling. Um, but still, um, you don't make the load go away. You just shift it. Shifting the load, shifting people's habits, and shifting the power supply to renewables while adding capacity to the grid are keys to making sure the flood of EVs don't swamp a power grid that's already feeling its limitations. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. San Diego-based Energy Source Minerals is licensing its lithium mining technology to a company operating on the Great Salt Lake. Energy Source says it's a step toward creating an American industry that will meet the soaring demand for lithium batteries in electric cars. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has more. The future of battery-powered cars depends on lithium, and now Energy Source has partnered with Compass Minerals to extract the metal from supplies of brine water in Utah. Energy Source mines lithium by running the salty brine through a filter that absorbs the metal, and that's the technology they plan to deploy at a plant being built along the Salton Sea. Eric Spomer, CEO of Energy Source, says working with Compass, a possible competitor, is necessary to meet the need for lithium for electric vehicles. I think we're all trying to support each other to try to support this EV revolution. 
that's coming. There's a, the demand's just huge. He says Energy Source plans to capture underground brine water near the Salton Sea and pump it back down after lithium is taken from it. He says that's much better for the environment than evaporation ponds or open pit mines. This will be the cleanest lithium in the world from every measure. Water use, land use, emissions, its it doesn't get any cleaner than this. Spomer says he expects his company facility will ultimately mine 20,000 tons of lithium per year. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. A group of migrants locked up in the Imperial Regional Detention Center filed a federal complaint alleging medical negligence, retaliatory use of solitary confinement, and civil rights violations. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis talked to one of the men who decided to speak out. For five months, Donald Varela Fernandez told medical staff at the Imperial County Detention Center that he suffered from severe pain in his hips, back, shoulder, and joints. Medical staff initially dismissed his complaints, but when Fernandez was finally taken to the hospital in El Centro, doctors told him he needed emergency back surgery. After the surgery, staff at the detention center took away instructions that doctors had given Fernandez as part of his recovery. They took everything away and they sent me to a medical section to solitary two days there, and then they sent me to uh, what they call Alpha to solitary again for another nine days. PJ Podesta is with the Innovation Law Lab, one of several organizations who helped file the complaint against Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and MTC, the private company that operates the detention center. We would like the oversight agencies to do a really thorough investigation to not let uh, the private contractors, not let ICE um, evade scrutiny. ICE did not respond to questions about the complaint. MTC issued a statement saying the company is committed to following the best practices. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. A recent KPBS investigation revealed an alcohol nursing home is still operating despite hundreds of complaints and instances of abuse. So how do families know which facility is right for their loved ones? Advocates say people have to do their homework and visit the facilities before agreeing to stay there. Tony Chicotel is a senior staff attorney with California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. He says facilities must ensure residents are comfortable and have their needs met. That's what nursing homes are paid to do, and it's what a lot of them fail to do. What we talk about all the time with resident care is residents who are comfortable and feeling safe and secure, they don't get violent. It's usually when they have unmet needs and they're feeling frustrated and angry that things get troublesome. A KPBS investigation found nearly 630 complaints at Avocado Post Acute since 2019. State investigations revealed a resident was sexually assaulted by her caregiver in 2019. And just a year ago, a man was allegedly strangled to death by his roommate. Coming up, a new study shows a greater risk of death for cancer patients facing housing instability. We'll have that story and more next, just after the break. Stay close.
Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. The UC San Diego School of Medicine has found that of many social and economic risk factors, housing insecurity was the one most strongly linked to death among cancer patients. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has more. The study examined more than 1,200 cancer patients. Among those who experienced social and financial difficulties, housing insecurity was the primary driver of mortality. Study co-author Matthew Benegas is director of the Center for Health Equity Education and Research at UC San Diego. Compared to people who do not have housing instability, those who do had a greater, about a twofold greater risk of mortality or death when we account for these other social factors. The other risk factors considered were financial hardship, food insecurity, and transportation problems. Benegas said having inadequate housing is a multifaceted problem, ranging from having no shelter to having no internet or access to water and power. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. Come Fall in Love, the DDLJ musical is the next big Broadway-bound show getting its roots in San Diego. It's an adaptation of a beloved 1995 Hindi-language rom-com musical known widely by its initials, DDLJ. It's the story of Simran, who is a young Indian-American woman with an arranged marriage awaiting her in India. Before she goes through with it, she sets out on a summer trip across Europe where she meets someone else. The stage adaptation is by prolific Broadway lyricist Nell Benjamin and the Mumbai-based musical duo known as Vishal and Shekhar, who wrote new music for the play. Vishal and Shekhar spoke with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. So before we dig into your role on this play, can you give our listeners a sense for the story and why this original film has been so enduring and so beloved? Come Fall in Love, the musical, is based on or is rather an adaptation of uh, an Indian film called uh, Dilwale Tolhaniya Le Jayenge, popularly known as DDLJ which is a seminal uh, film in the in the history of the Indian film industry, a film that has transcended being a uh, story and become sort of part of the fabric of modern Indian culture. Uh, why this happened, I think, is because of the beauty of the love story and the fact that 
the, the at the core, the film talks about the commonality of human emotion. The film itself is about the fact that uh, that people are people, and the musical is about that as well. It's about you know unifying people from across various backgrounds. It's about uh, about the meeting of cultures through the love of two young people. Within a few minutes of of starting to watch the musical, it's your story. You know, wherever you're from and whatever your back, background is, it's your story. So that's, I think, why people relate to it so strongly. Thanks, Vishal. Uh, Shekhar, I'm wondering what your own background is with the original film, whether you'd grown up watching it, and and maybe how that shaped your approach to penning new music. So uh, I think there's, it's, it's very rare to find anyone who's not a big fan of this film. Uh, this film came out in the year 1995, and I remember going and watching this film with my wife. Um, and I was 19 years old when I went to see this film. And um, uh, it just became an iconic love story. And like every single dialogue used to be discussed, and still it's been talked about. Every character are spoken about even today. Um, every line, every dialogue, every uh, comic um, you know, uh, moment is e- even used in everyday's uh, banter, even now. This movie is still in the theaters right now. And uh, when Adi kind of offered us this, this script, we were very excited and very thrilled because all the memories of the songs, all the memories of uh, the dialogues, the characters in the film, and it just, you know, took us a little time to, you know, figure out how to disconnect from the film because this is a totally new adaptation altogether. And for Vishal and I, we kind of immediately jumped into, you know, what Nell had written. Nell has written, uh, she's, the, she's the author and, uh, you know, the writer for Come Fall in Love. So she'd written all the songs down um, in, in this entire book. And then we kind of started making music and, and you know, and we realized that something really, really cool. We have 18 new, brand new English songs, which we've composed uh, in uh, Come Fall in Love. And Vishal, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the elements or the songs that have been maintained from that original movie? I just want to say that there are hat tips to the songs from the film, because we are fans as well. But they don't feature as songs as they feature as as much as they feature as transitions and moments that really the audience really explodes with joy when they when they when they find these little Easter eggs that we've popped into the you know the underscores or the or the storytelling. I think it's magical to see that. It's magical to see the effect that uh, that uh, you know that nostalgia still has on our audiences, and it's also magical to see that that we're able to give them an entirely new story with entirely new music and just hints of the original uh, songs, and and it all works as one because of the universality of the story itself of Come Fall in Love. 
Vishal, on the flip side, I'm wondering what you can tell us uh, are the biggest things that have changed in this in this adaptation. Oh, absolutely. The fundamental thing is that this is now a story of the meeting of two cultures. So it's, it's the story of the American culture as well as the Indian culture or the Indian-American culture meeting through the love of these two characters, uh, Roger Mandel uh, and Simran Singh. And they, um, for whatever it's worth, that in itself is a major change. There's also entirely new music. The songs are very celebratory. India is a huge character in this show. That was Vishal and Shekhar speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Come Fall in Love, the DDLJ musical, will be on stage at the Old Globe through October 16th. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great day.